Okay, so um, we're going to end our class on figural reading um, by considering the Psalms um, and their unique, well, the unique manner in which they bear witness to Christ. And again, remember this figural reading, what um, I've been aiming for in this whole class. Sorry, I don't have a handout for you guys today. I just totally spaced it. Um, (coughs) This figural reading is nothing but Christological reading. And that is reading all the scripture as a unified testimony to Jesus Christ. <clears throat> There's a lot of way of describing that, various ways, um, uh, but that's kind of our way of going about it. Reading the scripture as a unified testimony to Jesus Christ. Um, like we pointed out in that Colossians passage and in various other passages, um, Jesus is the, the substance, um, he's the reality to which Everything else in the scripture, uh, be it persons or institutions or events, um, are the shadows, right? They're, they're pointing ahead, looking toward the one in whom all they have their end and, and whom they find their ultimate meaning. And uh, again, it's no different there um, for the Psalms. The Psalms are the same, uh, well, they bear witness to Christ. So, um, that's the introduction. Let's look at Luke twenty four forty four. Um, this is again after Jesus has been raised from the dead. Uh, the disciples um, they don't understand the meaning of the resurrection. They can't get it, and so Jesus has to speak to them in very plain words. Luke twenty four forty four. Uh, he says, "These are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses." and the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So, in other words, the Scripture bears comprehensive witness to Christ. Um, now, what's interesting in this verse and Jesus' tripart description of the Scripture is that it's unusual. Uh, he says, the law, uh, the prophets, and the Psalms or as the Jews called it, um, the Tanakh, right? Has anyone heard that before, that phrase, the Tanakh? T-A-N-A-K. Yeah, that's right, the Tanakh. So that's the Torah, um, what we call the law, the first five books of Moses, um, what more accurately means something like teaching or instruction. So there's the Torah, then there's the Nevaim, which is the prophets, And then there's the Ketuvim, which is the writings. So that's the standard formula. Um, You'll find it all throughout the Scripture and all throughout Jewish tradition to refer to the Old Testament Scriptures, the Tanakh, uh, Torah, Nevaim, Ketuvim. So Jesus' substitution there to exclude or to substitute writings and instead insert the Psalms um, is important. Uh, Richard Hayes, in his great book on figural reading, he says... Whatever other reasons might be given for this formulation, um, it, it, it at least signals the special significance of the Psalter as a medium of the revelation of Jesus' identity. So, in other words, what he's saying, and I think he's right, because um, we have to account some reason why there's a change there, right? What Jesus is doing. Um, He's drawing the Lord as particular significance here to the fact that the Psalms also bear witness to him, right? That the Psalms 
testify to who Jesus is. So if we can kind of take that, uh, those words Jesus uses and say the Psalms are written about him and he's come at the fullness of time to make good on their testimony. So a little bit further in the class, we'll kind of try to put uh, some more meat on that and explain how that works um, and, and, and hopefully give you a framework um, in which to approach the Psalms that might make sense of how we can find Jesus prefigured in them. Uh, but before we do any of that, I just want to take um, a, a, a look at one of the more obvious instances in which the Psalms operate in this way. And the most obvious instance, um, among many quite obvious instances, is, um, well, let me ask, do you guys, what's the, what's the one Psalm, or at least the one that comes to your mind, that bears witness to Christ among the others? Mike? 22, that's right. <laughs> so I want to go through that and at least just kind of see how uh, Jesus and his situation in Psalm 22 map on to one another. So, in fact, it really is quite startling because it recounts the crucifixion, Psalm 22 does, in almost as much clarity as the Gospels. So, of course, um, we're not going to read the whole thing. I just want to bring a few details to your attention. So what opens... Um, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the opening words of Psalm 22 are Jesus' own words on the cross. In Aramaic, he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So there's a few ways to understand what Jesus is doing. Maybe he's quoting the psalm right? He, he, he's just kind of making association there. Um, maybe Jesus is associating himself with the psalmist. Perhaps he's even claiming to be the psalmist, the one speaking. Um, but anyway, the details continue. So in Psalm 22, um, if you have it before you, it's there on the screens as well. The uh, people, uh, whoever it is that's persecuting, persecuting David, um, they sneer at him and they reproach him. They say in verse 7, They separate the lip, they wag the head, saying, commit yourself to the Lord. They're mocking him for his trust in God. Uh, Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. So we have that. And against Jesus, the Gospel of Matthew records the people saying this. This is Matthew 27, verses 39 through 40, and then verse 43. It says, and those passing by, were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. We go back to Psalm 22. They separate the lip, they wag their head. So we have that here in Matthew. And saying, and then here's a direct quote from our uh, Psalm 22 passage once again. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. So again, it seems that the the only thing that separates the two events is time. And, of course, again, David recounts his persecution now in verse 16. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And of Jesus, the Gospel of Mark says, chapter 15, verse 24, And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots 
for them to decide which, what each man should take. So, having seen the correspondence, Jesus' words, all things written about me in the Psalms must be fulfilled, become all the more vivid. Um, but the Psalm doesn't end in darkness, right? Um, it comes out of this horrible, horrible circumstance into light. And so David is delivered from his trouble, and uh, he responds, and he says to the Lord, there's a dramatic shift from 21, uh, verse 21 to verse 22. This kind of doesn't tell us what happened. There's just a, a shift. And so, anyway, that happens, and he says, I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. And you can read on, but his response to the Lord's rescue um, begins in the assembly, right? I'm going I'm to tell it to my brethren. Um, I'm going to praise you in the midst of the assembly. And then it expands to encompass eventually the entire world. He says all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, right? So this victory starts to take on um, a much larger significance than just David's own situation. So his rescue then is, is, is again, something of a sign um, it's a remembrance for all people, teaching them, too, to trust in the Lord. And now here's, um, I, I never noticed this, actually, till putting this together. Um, here's what the New Testament does with that same verse, 22. Um, this is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Um, the unknown author of that epistle writes, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, so he's speaking of Jesus and those who he sanctifies, um, his brethren, that's us, he says, are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So we have our Father, we have our elder brother, Jesus, and then we are his brethren, also children of the Father. And then he quotes our passage. I will, well, rather, let me take a step back, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And if you ever want to you know, do see the apostles' weird figural reading, just go to the uh, epistle of Hebrews, which is full of this kind of thing. So anyway, the point uh, in our, of our little exercise, just to put the two together, is to show that there are obviously uh, two voices in the psalm. Um, there's David's words, and um, within them, however you want to phrase it, above them, uh, mimicking them, there are more importantly the words of Jesus. And, and, and look here, these words are put on the lips of Jesus to the Father. I will proclaim your name, the name of the Father, to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. So he proclaims the Father's name to his brothers and sisters. And I think in one of the coolest images, uh, and all scripture, in the midst of the congregation, Jesus, I will sing your praise. Jesus, singing the praise of the Father. So look at how uh, Justin Martyr, um, how he read this passage. So he's kind of doing the same thing we are, and he comes to his conclusion. He says, the rest of the psalm, that's from 22 onward, shows that he knew that his Father would grant all his requests and would raise him from the dead. It also shows that he encouraged all who fear God to praise him, and that he stood in the midst of his brethren, that is, of the apostles. The psalm finally shows that he sang that praise of God while he was with them, which actually happened. 
according to the memoirs of the apostles. So, again, uh, Justin Martyr here is just following the lines that we kind of set down. And he says, the memoirs of the apostles. I'm not sure if that refers to the writings of maybe the apostles, or I'm not sure what that's in reference to. Uh, But he says, yeah, what the end of Psalm 22 talks about, he says, happened um, after the resurrection um, in Jesus Christ. So I want to open this up and just get your thoughts here in a moment. But first, let me conclude just with this, is that when we take the, the Psalms specifically, right, which are most of them written in the first person, um, and then we see how they relate to Jesus. Again, we can argue about the extent, how many of them, and all that other stuff later. But let's just take the ones that the New Testament identifies. When we see how they uh, are spoken prophetically in the voice of Christ, it adds an astonishing depth um, and even a personal element to the crucifixion and the resurrection. Something that really, apart from Jesus's um, few words on the cross and his few words uh, before the cross, we just don't have that much insight. Uh, in the garden, we get some, in the garden of Gethsemane, we do. Um, but for the most part, Jesus is silent. He doesn't say much, not even to Pilate. But the Psalms provide us that inner glimpse into the heart and mind of Christ. Um, and he quite literally tells us uh, his thoughts and emotions. So reading then the Psalms, and we'll talk more about this as well. Uh, let's take Psalm 22. In reading it, and the point is that we're supposed to take on the voice of the psalmist ourselves, right? We're, we're supposed to make that prayer our prayer. What we're doing is we're taking the heart and mind of Christ and we're appropriating it to ourselves, right? We're, we're learning to speak to the Father the same words that Jesus speaks to the Father, right? We're, we're, we're learning to inhabit his prayer so to speak. So we'll talk about more about that a little bit um, when we get to, uh, I'll bring up some of the thoughts of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but, but, but just let me read just a, a short section of Psalm 22 and think about it with that in mind, as if these are, they are Christ's words speaking to the Father, but us learning to say those same words. Verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man. I'm a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate the lip. They wag their heads, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. You, Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. And on and on he goes, right? So the Psalms... This psalm in particular, read with the voice of Christ, uh, again, just adds a a, a profound um, depth to, I don't know, I'm trying to find words to express what I kind of experience in praying through these psalms, but uh, anyway, before we continue, I'd like to open it up and just, is that new, is that standard fare, what are you guys' thoughts on that, if any, not really giving you much. Okay, so very familiar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Uh, other, other, other religions? What do you mean by that, Tom? Uh, I mean, you've got all kinds of goofy stuff out there. Right. It seems like, like this is David is absolutely mining the words Oh, someone saying that. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay, so I would be interested to hear, uh, we'll, we'll come to this a little bit later so we can talk more about it, but the, the way that I would explain what we have here, David, like miming the words of Christ, is that David, inspired by the Spirit, First Peter 1, the Spirit of Christ who was in the prophets, that it was really the, the, uh, the, the Spirit of Christ, uh, Christ himself, uh, animating David's prayer, praying through David, so to speak, in anticipation of when he would come. I think that's the way I would frame it. Um, but you talked about that left and right. So on the far conservative side, um, you know, there's a, real, there's a real trouble with any sort of allegory or whatever or spiritual reading because it feels arbitrary. And so there's, we want to keep all of it rooted in um, in, in David's experience, and they would say, well, Christ is merely just quoting this. He's quoting it, he's referencing it, um, but it's not that strong. And then on the other side, uh, it would be, well, I guess you could put that, this was Christ, but I think on the other side it would be, you know, David was inhabiting some prophetic persona, I guess. Anyway, Mike, do you have anything? No. It would have spoiled all your fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, well, I think you can mine it for your entire life and still not get all of them. But, um, so anyway, we've seen, right, uh, to, to kind of carry on a little bit, we've seen um, that uh, as spoken from Jesus' own mouth, the Psalms bear witness to him. And we've seen at least one instance in what that looks like. So I want to take a stab at this and, uh, and, and try to make sense of this claim theologically um, and, and just ask that question, in what manner does the Psalms or do the Psalms bear witness 
to Christ. So I want to begin with a question. Uh, what are the Psalms? What are, what are your guys' thoughts? Um, what, what is their unique role within the Scriptures? The Psalms are fill-in-the-blank. Songs, prayers, songs, would you say, Greg? Praise and worship. Yeah, that's the fun ones. Relationship to God on a personal level, Bob? Yeah. That's a great description. Yeah, that's a great description. The 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 I like how you framed the the historical books look from the outside in, so to speak, but the Psalms are you know that very already introspective sort of uh uh uh, situation and we'll so we'll talk exactly about all these things and and we're all in agreement and I think the definition that I put was that the Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible, um, and in that sense they're they're entirely unique right There's no other book in all the Scripture that is devoted to prayer now in all of its various forms right uh, which uh, are many so they're Psalms of lament. Um, I think we could classify Psalm 22 as a Psalm of, of lament. Psalm 88, which is all lament. There's no, there's no escape from the darkness in that psalm. It ends in darkness. Um, and, of course, there are psalms of thanksgiving. There are psalms of confidence in the Lord. Um, there's also enthronement psalms, which depict either the king or even God assuming his throne. So think of like Psalm 72, Psalm 45, the, um, the royal psalms, 93 through... Uh, 99, uh, there's wisdom psalms, Psalm 90 from Moses, right? Or uh, Psalm 78, which is recounting the history of Israel and telling it in a way to provide wisdom. And then, of course, there's like the liturgical psalms, which are, are really cool where, um, what is it? It's Psalm 132, where these would have been sung either in the temple or at the synagogue together with the people, um, is it 132 or 135? Anyway, I can't seem to find it. Oh, there it is. Um, Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And someone will recite, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And then there's the response. Give thanks to the God of gods. And then for his loving kindness is everlasting. And all the way through the psalm, his loving kindness is everlasting again and again. So these are all different variations. There's the private Psalms, there's the public psalms, and they're sung corporately um, in worship and, of course, in one's day-to-day experience. And um, that much is obvious, but the point I want to make about the psalms is that um, in them, the entire scope of human existence is brought before God. Um, A little bit like Bob was mentioning, um, and I think, in fact, the psalms simply are human life, live toward God in prayer. 
all the various situations that we encounter from the highest heights to the lowest lows. The Psalms take all of them and they put them in the context of God. They relate everything to God in prayer. So Athanasius, uh, uh, one of the church fathers, said, whatever your particular need or trouble, from this same book, you can select a form of words fit to it, so you learn the way to remedy your ill, right? So whatever it is, go find the psalm that suits it and, and learn to speak to God in those words. And of course, that's why the psalms have been so precious uh, to the church and to believers down through the ages because they, uh, well, they express oftentimes what's inexpressible and they, they give us words to speak. Uh, Bob? Absolutely. So let's just capitalize on that. Let me skip forward a little bit ahead here, and we'll capitalize on that thought, and um, and then I'll circle back around to make the the point I was going to make here. Um, do, 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 do. Okay. So we're talking about the inspiration of the Psalms, um, and and again, no one's going to argue to the contrary that they're not inspired. They are. Um, they're not merely free willing, ad hoc human prayers, right? These are not merely just the words of so-and-so, but they're directed according to the Spirit. Um, And in that sense, um, being inspired by the Spirit and being also prayers to God, the Psalms are unique. Um, We understand the Scriptures as God's Word to us, but the Psalms are our words to God. However, they're also inspired. So what we say about the Psalms is they're prayers from God to God, right? God teaching us how to speak uh, uh, and, and, and inspiring our prayer. And so King David says as much. Um, let me get to that Second Samuel passage. Um, so this is David. Uh, these are his last words or his last song before he uh, is going to die and turns over the kingdom to his son Solomon. He says, now these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares, the man who was raised on high declares the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. And then, you know, he goes on to recount so and so. Anyway, David, um, according to, uh, I guess, his self designated title, the sweet psalmist of Israel, um, was inspired to write and to pray the Psalms. Um, and again, there's a good deal of Trinitarian theology locked away in those verses. So notice, David's 
prayer, uh, his song, however you want to phrase it, is addressed to God. We'd understand that as God the Father, um, who inspires his words, the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me. And what is the content of his prayer? His word was on my tongue. So his prayer is inspired by the Spirit, and it's the word that comes out, and it's God's word that goes back to him. So in talking about the relation of Christ to the Psalms, here's where I think he comes into the picture. Um, the, the word that David was given um, was the word of Christ, uh, a word about Christ. In fact, I think the word of Christ. So the Psalms, uh, take some of the Psalms that we're told that are about Christ, um, that, we, that we know without a shadow of a doubt. Um, and they're in the first person, right? So yes, it's David who's speaking, um, or the psalmist who's speaking, but it's Christ who also speaks in them. So Psalm 16, about uh, the death and resurrection of Christ that features so prominently in that Acts 2 sermon. Psalm 40, um, Hebrews 10, or Psalm 69, again, to name a few. Um, Well, let me just actually read them. Uh, So Psalm 16, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Peter quotes that, and Acts chapter 2, in reference to Jesus, or even this, I think even more explicit. Then I said, Psalm 40, Behold, I come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. Again, the very voice of Christ. Yes, David, but Christ who speaks in David. And uh, Psalm 69, which we'll spend a little bit of time looking at toward the end of class. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So, at least in some sense, we again, can argue about the extent later, it's Jesus who speaks here in the first person. It's his voice. So right when David says, the word of the Lord was given to me, I think what we're, at least what I want to affirm is that it's, it's, he's given the word of Christ. Um, well, nobody puts it better than Bonhoeffer here. And if you have a, little, if you have a chance to pick up his little book, um, the Psalms, the prayer book of the Bible, um, it's absolutely fantastic. He, he says, the prayers of David... Um, were prayed also by Christ, or better, Christ himself prayed them through his forerunner, David. And that's, that's, I think, is the right understanding. Christ himself prayed them through his forerunner, David. It's important to note that even David did not pray out of personal exuberance of his heart, out of the personal exuberance of his heart, but out of Christ who dwelled in him, right? Christ was the one animating these prayers. So we have that element, uh, the inspiration of the Psalms. Now, I want to then circle circle back around to uh, quickly just touch on um, what, uh, well, the first part of this. So we have an idea of what the Psalms are, these very personal prayers that cover all human experience. Um, So let's take that now and turn toward Christ. We've already seen that he inspires these psalms, but at the very heart of our faith is the confession that Jesus is true God and 
true man, right? So in both ends of those have to be held in tension. Well, not in tension, in unity, because they're not in tension. Um, he is perfectly God, perfectly man. So on the human end, uh, that leads us to a very particular understanding, right? So we can't affirm if Jesus is true man, that he was something of a superman, right? Um, or, or that he was some sort of Hercules demigod kind of figure, um, or, or any of that. He had to be a human in the very same manner as us, true, true, true man. Um, and, of course, God worked through him in a unique way and dwelled in him, was him. Um, however, we have to keep that human part intact. And, of course, that's what the scriptures do. I'm all discombobulated here. Let me get to, there it is. This is what the scriptures do. Hebrews 2.17, For he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high, faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. So again, we want to take the author's statement there at face value. All things. Um, we, we understand that quite literally. There's not a single thing about our human experience that Jesus did not share in. As we'll read later on in Hebrews, uh, he, he was tempted um, in all things as we are, yet without sin. And therefore, he, he, he's become our, our high priest who's able to sympathize with our weakness in things pertaining to God, Hebrews 4. So, again, put simply, the Son of God became incarnate into our human situation, and he tasted all of its sweetness and all of its bitterness, of course, in his own life, but then more specifically upon the cross as he took to himself the sins of mankind. So, we've seen the Psalms are inspired of Christ. As Bonhoeffer said, it's Christ who prays in David, the forerunner, and now we see Christ comes into our human nature, and let's put two and two together. Again, uh, Bonhoeffer, he says, how is it possible for a man and Jesus Christ to pray the Psalter together? It is the incarnate Son of God who has borne every human weakness in his own flesh, who here pours out the heart of all humanity before God, who stands in our place and prays for us. So in other words, what Bonhoeffer is saying, and I think it's the right understanding of his high priestly ministry, is that in becoming incarnate, the Son of God takes upon our weakness, but that weakness as exemplified in the Psalms. And he takes them and he makes them his own prayer as our faithful and merciful high priest. So he continues and then we'll move on. He says, therefore, it is the prayer of the human nature assumed by him which comes before God. It is really our prayer, but since he knows us better than we know ourselves, and since he himself is the true man for our sakes, it is also really his prayer, and it can become our prayer only because it was his prayer. So again, there's two ways of looking at it. The Psalms are inspired and Christ speaks through David, prays through David, but then also Christ becomes incarnate, and he inhabits those prayers. Um, so again, by virtue of his priestly role, um, Jesus becomes the true prayer of the Psalms. Um, anything on that before we get forward? Bob, how does that accord with your understanding? If connecting Christ there, does that fit in well, or is that strange? 
That's fair. That's fair. Okay. <laughs> Anybody? All right. Alyssa, go ahead. That's a labor of love. The biggest takeaway was the cleanliness of the Psalms through David was what Bob talked about, that intimate knowing how to pray to the Lord. And he didn't hold back any of the hard things that he was going through, any of the fearful things. He laid them out there. But the pattern that we saw over and over and over again was And I think that's the pattern that you find fulfilled in the life of Jesus, particularly those Psalms. Like if you take Psalm 22, Psalm 16, uh, Psalm 69 that we just mentioned, it's Christ, you know, bearing it all out before the Lord. Um, And uh, I want to stop short of saying complaining, um, but pouring all of that out, and then there's the answer and the deliverance. And that's part of that high priestly function where uh, Jesus was a true man and he faced everything that we faced and he went through that same journey, you know. And I mean, how you understand that uh, in relation to his divinity is difficult. However, when the Psalms are put on, Jesus' voice is put in those Psalms in that manner. So yes, that's, uh, that's uh, I mean, that's the, the, the very heart of what the Psalms are. Huh. Would the same thing be said of, of say, the sons of Korah or Enoch or the other psalms? Yeah, yeah. I think David uniquely um, the other psalms. It, you know, the sons of Korah, so on and so forth. They're all associated with David because all the the psalm tradition starts with the inspiration of David. Um, in Psalm 16, where he starts to play the harp for Saul, so on and so forth. Um, but then he's the one who institutes music in the worship of Israel in Second Samuel. I forget what chapter it is. So all of it's tied up with David. Um, I, would, I would probably want to say yes, but to a lesser degree, maybe. Um, of course, still inspired by the Holy Spirit, but the the, the unique Christological aspect of it. Um, yeah, that's very different. 
Yeah. Yeah, I would want to say that. Mm-hmm. Bob, did you have something? Yes. 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 Bob, you are on it today. So let's look at my next section. Uh, the whole Christ's head and body, right? So I want to talk about that very thing. And I think that's ultimately what makes the most sense of the Psalms, is when we think of them in that very sense. And the two core passages, Psalm 25, I mean, uh, Matthew 25, to the extent that you did it to the least of these, uh, my brethren, you did it to me. And then um, Acts 9, yeah, Acts 9, uh, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Um, and so, so where I'm getting this from is uh, partially from Augustine, but others as well. Um, but it was... Augustine, who took those two verses and made them axiomatic for all of his interpretation of the Psalms, that the head speaks for the body, the body shares, and anyway, it, it was a, and to me, that, that's where this, like, uh, the Psalms became, so Tish, to follow in your footsteps, um, I've got, I'm not going to do it in succession, but I hope, well, like, within the next 10 years, I'll be able to get through all 150 Psalms, and so I'll start, like, I'm probably going to do it two months at a time, something like that, and break it up, but it's, I think it's a worthwhile thing. Um, anyway, they just come alive to me in a way they haven't before. So anyway, this expression that's used, that we use in our church to talk most about who we are is the body, right? We are the body of Christ. That's secondhand for the church. Now, we use it a lot, and, and I'm not advocating against that, um, but what can happen um, is it can seem like a, a, a pious sort of fiction or an elaborate metaphor um, used to describe some sort of human sociological reality. Um, because as a term, body is used that way, right? There's the body politic, uh, there's a body of work, and et cetera, et cetera. But that's not how the New Testament uses that term, body. Um, it's not a metaphor. It's a theological reality. I mean, it's metaphorical to an extent, but there's a real substance beneath it. And, well, look what uh, John Calvin says. Um, it is usual, uh, however, for any society of men or congregation to be called a body as one city constitutes a body. And so, in like manner, one senate, one people. And he goes on, among Christians, however, the case is very different, for they do not constitute a mere political body, but are the spiritual and mystical body of Christ, as Paul adds. So in other words, 
when the New Testament says that we're the body of Christ, there's a real spiritual unity between Christ, the head, and the body, his church. Um, we're not dealing merely in image or figure of speech, but in um, theological reality, uh, the union of Christ with the church, right? Think of that most often repeated phrase in the New Testament, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. We're united to him, baptized into him, so on and so forth. So look at the definitive passage here. And, and notice the words that the apostle uses. It's real, I didn't never pick this up again until uh, just this past week. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, all the members of the body, excuse me, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. So also is Christ. For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, where the Jews or Greeks, where the slave or free, we are all made to drink of one spirit. So again, it's really remarkable what the apostle says, that the head together with the body constitutes one Christ. Look at that first line there. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one, so also is Christ. So he doesn't make a distinction there between body and head. He just says, as we're made up of many members, head, body, arms, also, he says, so is Christ. They're one. So a body is a single unit with many members, but all the members of the body, numerous as they are, still constitute one body. And it's the same with Christ. Again, he doesn't say Christ members. Um, he says simply Christ. So Christ in his death and resurrection, right, in the giving of the Spirit to us, he's not, he can't be described apart from his body. We're, we're in him. So think of like what the Apostle says in Galatians 2. Um, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Or Colossians 3. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So set your mind on things above. And when Christ, who is your life, appears... Uh, something about glory, right? Uh, so it's a real description. Again, uh, Ephesians 5, 30 through 32, we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Again, how literal we interpret that is up for debate. One flesh, right? That That's kind of where it gets difficult. Um, Although I think the Apostle Paul says something along those lines in 1 Corinthians 10 about the, the bread we eat and us becoming one body. Anyway, um, regardless of you know, what is, how we understand that, the Apostle's point is taken. Uh, Christ and the church are one, as a husband and wife are one in marriage. They become one flesh, so we are united to Christ, and, and we constitute one body. So here's, Bob, the text that... You mentioned, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. And then Matthew 25, 40, the king will answer and say to them, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Of course, Jesus' words in both passages presuppose a spiritual unity that is explained elsewhere. To bless or harm the body, that is the church, is to bless or, bless or harm the head, Christ. And again, they're not two, but they're one. 
the church in Christ, Christ in the church. So uh, look at how Augustine explains this. Um, And this is how he makes sense of some of the difficult passages that I'll point out in a minute. It says, Consider first how it is the head, and only the head that is able to speak for the limbs. Think of how this happens in your own experience, how the head speaks up for the rest of you. If you are in a crowded place and someone treads on your toes, you protest, your head protests, you're treading on me. No one touched your head, but the organic unity of the body speaks. Your tongue, which resides in your head, has spoken in the name of all your members. It discharges the duty of speech on behalf of them all. And then he goes to say, that's what you find in the Psalms. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, it's Jesus speaking, but it's the head speaking for the body. It's not his own forsakenness. I mean, obviously, he's forsaken, but intrinsically not his own. It's ours that he bears. He takes on our weakness. He takes on our griefs and sorrows. So it's the head speaking for the body. Or like other Psalms, like Psalm 40, I taught this over Christmas, and I didn't know what to do with this section, so I just skipped it. Um, But uh, it puts these words on the lips of Christ. But then he says just shortly after, um, where have you gone? Okay. In verse 12 of Psalm 40, For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am more numerous, so that they are more numerous than the heads, the hair of my head, and my heart has failed me. Right? Um, thinking, I was like, I don't know what to do with that because I got myself into the corner where I was interpreting that very beginning of the psalm as all Christ. And then I got to that and I was like, I don't know what to do. And what Augustine did, now I don't know if we want to follow him on that. He said, that's the head speaking for the body. Right? That's him speaking for his people, him bearing our sins. My iniquities have overtaken me. And, and, and he justifies it by appealing to 2 Corinthians 5. Um, he who knew no sin became sin for us. Right? An exceedingly radical statement that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, uh, yeah, Bob, I think you're 100%. On. And anyway, that's the framework I think that's most helpful to approach the Psalms in there, that Christ speaking for his body and uh, kind of encompassing all that suffering within himself. And yeah. Any thoughts on that one? Or a time where we at? Okay. Um, what I want to do now, uh, and just we can wrap up with this uh, fairly quickly, is I want to try... Um, well, it seems like you guys are already pretty wise toward the Psalms that uh, do speak of Christ. So let's try one that doesn't. So I was in my shed this week. That's become my little hideout. I go to, I go to my shed and I watch tennis and pick an imprecatory one. Okay, even better. Let's do that. Okay, so in Acts chapter 2, I'm glad you brought that up, Mike. This, is, this, this, makes, this makes interpretation difficult, right? Um, in Acts chapter 2, and I want to get your thoughts on this because there is discussion to be had here, and I know Tom and I have had this conversation, or we've had it in Bible study. Um, Judas, right, um, betrays the Lord. He hangs himself. His guts spill out, um, so on and so forth. The disciples, the apostles now, seeking to replace someone. And uh, Peter, uh, speaking for them, appeals Acts chapter 2, verse 19. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 1, verse 19. I got that wrong. Chapter 1, 19. 
Um, and it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that their own language, that the field was called uh, Hakeldama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, and no, lo, let no one del, dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Therefore it was necessary that the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from, from us, one of these must become a witness with us uh, of his resurrection. So they replaced someone. They replaced Judas, rather, and they're looking for someone, and it becomes Matthias. But they appeal to the Psalms, and they appeal to two Psalms there. Uh, the first, I don't know that one by memory, it's Psalm 69, but the second is Psalm 109. Psalm 109 is very difficult. So if we take that as the words of Christ, well, we actually, we don't have to take it as the words of Christ, but I think, I don't know who else could be speaking here. Um, if we take Psalm 109, and if you guys want to just turn there now, these imprecatory psalms, what we find, Mike, and you guys tell me, is if, are these the words of Jesus, or are they someone else, or how do we understand this? Or maybe Peter was off, maybe he wasn't doing the right thing, because there's some questions there about Matthias. But those imprecatory psalms, they're, they're put on the lips of Christ. So, uh, beginning in verse 1, O God of my praise, do not be silent. For they have opened the wicked and deceitful mouth against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without cause. In return for my love, they act as my accusers, but I am in prayer. Thus they have repaid me evil for good and hatred for my love. Right? Okay, that, that sounds like Christ. But let's, okay, it's obviously a Psalm of David. And then here's where our passage comes in. Verse 6. Appoint a wicked man over him, and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him come forth guilty, and let his prayer become sin, let his days become few. And here's our line, let another take his office, in reference to Judas. Let his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. Let his children wander about and beg, and let them seek sustenance far from their ruined homes. Let the creditor seize all that he has, and let strangers plunder the product of his labor. Let there be none to extend loving kindness to him, nor any of the gracious let nor any be gracious to his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off in following in a following generation, let their name be blotted out. So I guess one I want to ask is how does that read? Does that does that Mike does that seem like it would be one of those Psalms where we find the voice of Christ? Doesn't seem like it. Okay, what do you what do you think? Or so okay. Well, then let me ask this: How do you make sense of the uh, of the quotation referring to Judas? Okay, all right. Anybody else have any thoughts? So my thought was, I took that as Christ. I you know let another let another take his office, and and based especially on the first five verses of that psalm, uh, I think that's the voice of Christ speaking. Because we have to somehow relate this to, 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 to Judas. So if that's the voice of Christ, then <laughs> I just don't know what to do with the rest of the song. Yes, Liz?
Right. Yeah. So on David's lips, right? A Psalm of David, it's, it's a lot, it's pretty acceptable. Like it makes sense, right? (laughs) It's like, yeah, I could see David praying those things and being very, very angry and so on and so forth. Now, maybe I'm wrong to read that as the voice of Christ. And maybe we should just take a more general typological approach. And maybe you can section off verses six through nine and, and, and maybe relate those to Judas. I'm not sure exactly what the apostle Peter is doing there. Um, all I'm saying is that it just it, it severely complicates things. So, so Mike asked for the imprecatory one, and I, that one puts me in a hard spot. When I first read that, and I was like, oh, I don't know what to do with if, if those are Christ's words and so on and so forth. But And I'm with you, right? I think, to me, that's like, oh, wow, that's, that sounds like the voice of Christ. Um, it's the following part that becomes hard. When, so, you know, you would imagine Jesus, then, if you want to take that to the next step, would be saying, let there be none to extend loving kindness to him, nor any be gracious to his fatherless children. You know, so I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm, you know, not, not the the part where we eliminate judgment for the picture from the picture. But anyway, it's rather visceral, and I'm not sure what the right way to go is there. I mean, and it was fulfilled regardless. I mean, that was it for Judas, and that was it for his lineage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the accuser was appointed over him. <laughs> yeah. Mike, you, did you have something as well? No. Yeah, yeah, and and that's where I'm. I'm just kind of willing to. We just need to kind of work with what fits best, right? Because sometimes the scripture would lead us there, and I'm like, okay, I just I just don't know what to do. The apostle Paul seems to know what to do because in uh, Psalm 69, um, 
it's another psalm, right? This is one where Jesus is, uh, it's, this is, I think, next to Psalm 22, the next most messianic explicit one. Um, so you have in verse 4 of Psalm 69, um, those who hated me without a cause. Jesus references that in John 15 and says, on his way to the crucifixion, that's in fulfillment of the scriptures. They hated me without a cause, speaking of him. He does, he does the same in verse 9. Um, for zeal, for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. We have that first line in John chapter 2, the second line in Romans 15. Um, and then, obviously, verse 21, they gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And we know, obviously, on the cross, those two instances with um, sour wine and wine mixed with gall. Um, and then, so the Apostle Paul is tracking with all that. And then 22 of Psalm 69, he says, May their table before them become a snare, and when they are in peace, may it become a trap. So he quotes that in that long extended discussion on Israel in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. So he does this at the end toward Romans 11, uh, Romans 11, 9. And he, he reads that for face value, and he relates it to the hardening of Israel. Um, he says, beginning... In verse 7, what then was is, what Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who have chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened, just as it was written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And then, verse 9, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. So anyway, he takes that imprecatory part and he relates it to Israel and their hardened situation. And anyway, um, so it complicates, it not complicates it, but it makes it interesting. And you get to see what the, what the apostles are doing there with the Psalms. And, uh, you know, another instance would be Psalm 45, where your throne, O God, is forever and for, forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Hebrews chapter 2, I think, um, chapter 1, rather, um, says quite explicitly that that's Christ. Um, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So anyway, it makes it rather difficult. But I just want to do a little bit of that, but our time now, we're kind of where we're supposed to be. Any questions on the Psalms? I guess I would just give an encouragement. Um, try it out. Test out the voice of Christ and see if it fits. I read Psalm 17, maybe start there. To me, that one fits. Psalm 17 sounds a whole lot like the Lord to me, and uh, especially the ending of that psalm. But um, anyway, yeah, try it out. See if it fits, and I find that the psalms then take on a whole uh, new depth of meaning. So, anything else? Okay, thank you guys for hanging in to the very end. I appreciate all your your faithfulness and putting up with... uh, Well, with everything, but let me go ahead and pray and we'll call it.